0: Colin Smith who is the curator of collections has curated an extraordinary, extraordinary It's called Presence and it's meditations on the Spellman College collection. So there are about 25 objects that are indeed in the permanent holdings that speak to everything from soft power to claiming your space. It is an exceptional show. It primarily is uh, it primarily features some of our newer acquisitions, and it's a knockout. I can't get enough of it. I walk into it every day, and it's just a really, really exceptional exhibition.
1: Welcome to Be Your Own Muse, a podcast presentation of the Spelman College Museum of Fine Art. I'm Floyd Hall, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with the Spelman College Museum's curator of collections, Ann Collins-Smith. Ann, how are you?
0: I am great. How are you?
1: I'm very well. Glad to have some time with you today. We are here in the museum's gallery space. How do you approach a show?
0: Hmm. Well, I was thinking about themes, and I was also really thinking about, you know, the Amy Sherald exhibition and what it would be about would be portraiture. And so I looked through the lens of portraiture and just spending time frequently um, in our vault, I um, was just looking at work that we hadn't seen or we hadn't you know premiered at the museum before and just thinking about several ideas as it relates to curatorial practice so one of the major things I was looking at was soft power and how artists you know in you know difficult circumstances show up and defend themselves and you know, proclaim their presence.
1: Say more about that, soft power.
0: Soft power? So soft power, for instance, there's a work here by Iona Roselle Brown, 83 um, Blackface Number 65. And basically it harkens to Japanese fascination with Black American culture. So at a certain point in history, Commodore Matthew Perry, on an expedition to Japan, entertained the people in Japan with a a blackface show. And so that was the way that they were being, you know, they were showing, you know, Japanese what America was, it was through the black lens of black culture. And so that was their way to be diplomatic and foster relations. And so that's what soft power is, is this is what we have here as if, you know, blackness is an attraction. Are mm. a source of entertainment, mm-hmm. or, you know, a way of entering into the world.
1: You mentioned a description of that work that carried with it a number or some sort of designation that I'm imagining is, is for the for the curatorial um, collector or the um, for the curator of collections. Yes, that's how you identify the work. Yes. Say more about about that particular system.
0: So, um, A three. Yeah. So A three stands for and it's that what the artist created? Afro Asiatic Allegory. Hmm. Okay. So she, what the artist when she went to Japan, her name is Iona Rosiel Brown, and she goes by Rosio. When she went to Japan, she was noticed. She noticed a fascination with black culture and how many of the youth there were, you know, black skin and took on you know hip-hop kind of identities and clothing and style to the point that they were using fashion fair makeup to darken themselves they were called gongoro which literally translates into blackface so the afro-asiatic allegory and with the work you know she uses you know a print from a ukulele print which is a woodblock japanese printmaking method to draw between distinctions of during this time the edo period when leisure was um, more rampant then and how the hip-hop culture looks at leisure at the same time, and so there are uncanny resemblances. For instance, you know, this figure, although it does have like this UKOE, U-K-I-O-Dash-E template, you know, she personalized it till it looks like a modern-day figure. And many people may know of who that modern-day figure is now, because of Love and Hip Hop Miami, it's Trina. So some of the uncanny resemblances is what she picked up. Mm. So the Afro-Asiatic allegory. So kind of timeless impressions at the same time.
1: What was it about this particular exhibition that felt right right now?
0: Well, we live in this culture of hyper-presence. You know, when we're, you know, um, proclaiming our presence on in social media, you know, in the ways we search for accolades and other things like that. And so I really wanted to really examine and um, queer what presence means, because sometimes, you know, presence is about posturing. Suppose it isn't just um, about posturing or posing or posturing. Suppose it's just about really being there and noticing things that people may not notice but are as equally as powerful. For example, you know, the first years have this exercise where they choose a work in the museum and they look for its ashe, which means its life force. And when ashe is really spoken about a lot, it's about how you, you know, you present yourself, you know, but I, you know, a life force can also be calm. It doesn't necessarily have to be performed. And so that's how I really looked at the notion of presence. I look for what isn't performed, although performance is here, but what isn't really just really um, in your face, you know, clamoring for, for attention.
1: What is your curatorial philosophy?
0: Well, um, I'm an instigator, I'm an intermediary, I think um, I like, you know, by Zodiac, which is a cancer, that means a caretaker, so I'm like in the perfect field. So, you know, a curator takes care of, um, we take care of by, you know, being the intermediary between the artist, the artwork and the audience, and also setting contexts in which to appreciate work, to support art and audience, and sometimes being a conjure woman, you know, and sometimes instigating certain kind of conversations, so that's my philosophy.
1: Conjure Woman, shout out to Renee Stout. Yes, yes, um, yes.
0: And Obey a Woman, shout out to you know the muse and Romero Bearder's work, and also Obey a Woman, which has the best remix, um, Nina Simone. So yeah.
1: Now say more about being an instigator. I want to know more about that. And 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 when you when you say that within the context of of your eye or how you frame this work for the visitor to experience, what do you hoping to um, evoke in that moment.
0: You know sometimes artists and even you know curators can get in their heads and so helping them to get out of their heads sometimes like there's this one artist Pierre Benue who is a great comedian um, comedian. He did the video for um, Gregory Porter's Be Good and also a great artist and one of the things he's working on are these kind of nude silhouettes and he was asking about color. And these were hyper-colored. I was like, well, what about grayscale, you know? And I know that we look for color and sometimes grayscale may kind of make something disappear, but I think it was like a soft, subtle kind of um, presence that I think was also needed, you know? And so Instagram, like, try grayscale. He was like, yeah, that's boss, you know? And this was all through a um, conversation on Instagram. So it's just helping other people to see possibilities and helping us, all of us, get out of our heads.
1: I would love for you to talk about how the museum collects work. Okay. Um, So I mentioned Renee Stout, she had a show here, uh, Conjure Woman. Mm -hmm. And I know that a lot of um, the pieces in the collection, Mm -hmm. some of them uh, have come from shows that were here. Yes. So can you say uh, more about the philosophy that the museum has? around collecting work and what does it mean to collect work and sort of what is the the mission of the collection
0: okay sure and i would like to say that we have yet to collect a work by renee stout and i'm looking forward to when we do Mm -hmm. Um, so the museum's collection i'll tell you about the genesis of it yeah basically it was started as a teaching collection it wasn't necessarily about artwork It was, you know, former students going to Africa and bringing back, you know, their souvenirs so that they could learn about, you know, what happened in other countries. I think Spelman started collecting in earnest when we were giving works by Hale Woodruff. Hale Woodruff was one of the founders of the art department, and they were woodblock prints of campus buildings throughout the Atlanta University Center. Most of the gifts we've received have been through gifts, so we haven't, You know, in the past, it was like, okay, thank you, we'll take them, you know. um, Also, our collection um, is due to something called the Atlanta Coordinated Art Program, which was when each of the colleges had a specific genre of art they taught. Spelman printing, not printing, that's Clark Atlanta. Um, Spelman had painting, sculpture, and art history, Clark Atlanta printmaking, um, film and video, and photography, and Morris Brown, all the applied arts. So there were artists during the Atlanta Coordinated Art Program who served as artists in residence, and so Spelman was able to collect their works. Another um, collecting moment, um, Clark Atlanta University's Art Museum's collection is because of the Atlanta Art Annuals. So. Let's harken to 1983, it was a different year, Spellman had a president, you know, students in the 70s had rallied against, you know, the naming of a, yet another male president, although this was the second African-American or black president in the college. And so when the second president was named, his Donald, second African-American president was named, Donald Stewart, knew that he would be the last male president at Spellman. And one of the things he was very sensitive to was that, you know, young black women needed to see black women, you know, in various fields from diplomacy to business and even art and, you know, artists. And so he rallied um, Janelle C. Holloway, who was also chair of the art department, whose daughter Chanel Holloway teaches here, to select works by black women artists to enter into the Spelman Collection. Those artists include um, Emma Amos, Lucille Malkia Roberts, who taught at Clark Atlanta, Janelle C. Holloway herself, Betty Blayton Taylor, who was um, instrumental in with the Studio Museum and the Children's Art Carnival, Stephanie Pogue, and Lori Orlicht, and Claudia Wittes. And so we've used that 1983 moment when we collected the works by black women artists to um, really shape what our mission is. And so since um, 2001, 2003, we've been very, very clear about what we wanted to collect. And that's been primarily the works of prioritizing actually the works by black women artists. And we like to collect, we aim to collect works by black women artists from each of our original exhibitions.
1: In this exhibition, can you maybe point to one or two pieces that have interesting collection stories mm. that that sort of highlight the process of acquiring that piece okay. so that someone can sort of hear or, the backstory of that relationship between the artist and the institution
0: okay sure I'll talk about two works so in 2009 the museum presented an exhibition called undercover um, performing and transforming black female identities and one of those works in one of those in that exhibition we want to um, acquire a work by Makita Ahuja, and it was already acquired by someone else, and so we couldn't, we could, we couldn't acquire it at that time. A friend of the museum, who's on the advisory board, shared with us that she knew of an availability. Of a work and we couldn't believe it was a work that we wanted so it may take time to acquire works that we want but I also believe in Cairo's times so our brain kind of you know a spiritual practice with me to my curatorial practice too and so it became available to us you know at a great point and it was irresistible to collect another one of our works is that has quite the provenance, which means the history of ownership, is a work by Herman Kofi Bailey, Angela Contemplating. So, Herman Kofi Bailey was one of those artists in residence during the time of the Coordinated Art Program. We have three other lovely drawings by him in our permanent collection Mr. Howard Moore, a collector, and um, husband of Jane Bond Moore, who is the daughter of Horace um, Bond. Horace Julian Bond, who's also the father of Julian Bond, um, a Morehouse alumnus and a civil rights activist, approached us with um, an acquisition, a, a acquisition proposal, and the name of the work is Angela Contemplating. So it was, it was irresistible, again, to, you know, be able to collect the work. But We had an exhibition, I think was in 2013, multiple choice. And in multiple choice, we um, invited members of the community to select their favorite works and to speak on those works. So um, one of the persons who said yes was Michael Lomax, who's the president of the United Negro College Fund, UNCF, came, looked at our collection. One of the amazing things about Dr. Um, Lomax is that he knows our collection. You know, our 70s part of the collection because he taught English here, and he's really been engaged in the arts, also helped, you know, with the formation of the Hammond's House Museum and also the Arvin Avenue Resource Center Library, and was one of the founders of the National Black Arts um, National Black Arts Festival. So back to Angela contemplating, he selected that piece, he's a family friend. And although um, Mr. Moore had given us a lot of information about the piece and Angela Davis, he neglected, or he didn't neglect, he didn't left out one important detail. And that detail was filled in by Michael Lomax, which we have on film. And what's great about this work is that one of the things we did not know is that when Angela Davis was incarcerated, she had two selves, one to eat and one to write. And so this um, portrait of her is her in her writing cell. And so that's an amazing kind of story that goes behind the acquisition of that work.
1: So I wanna talk about you now. Okay. When did you embark upon this path as a curator? And when was it apparent that this was what you wanted to do?
0: Honestly, I think it was apparent since birth and I'll get back to that later. When I entered Spelman, it was my goal to really become an attorney, and then the O.J. Simpson trial happened, and then I really thought, rethought going into law, and so I kind of had this moment of consciousness when I'm like, "Can I really, um, really defend someone who may not be have integrity?" And so I used that skill to play to. Um, become an advocate for the arts. And so from there, I um, studied arts administration, and what I would say as a curator, I'm an advocate. So the moment you're asking, when did I know I would become a curator? As a little girl, there was this toy called the View Master, and so it was like a projector. And so you would put these, um, these slides into the projector. And so I remember having this Snow White slide and do these lectures to my parents, right? And my parents would have to sit there while we project and also show them these, you know, these images. I guess, I don't know, I made up all kinds of stories about Snow White, which is ironic because one of my favorite artworks is by an artist whose work is represented in presence, Bernie Searle, and she did this work called Snow White. And so I would have my parents sit through these lectures. But also, I remember having my brother um, be mad at me because he had just painted the hallway wall. And I had just put up my own kind of installation of some, some, you know, um, coloring pages. And he was really mad because my mom had just paid him to paint the wall, and I ruined his his masterwork. And um, I'm glad that my mom just, you know, really supported the sacredness of that. Also, looking at an individual education plan Um, post-Katrina, so I'm from New Orleans, and my parents gathered as much of the paperwork as possible. And one of these things, as I'm looking at what made and what wasn't, though, the destruction of my home and what my parents were able to save was my IEPs. And reading my IEP, you know, for the first time in, like, 20 years, it said, you know, Anne belongs in museums. So. I never thought about that. And I never thought that I had a, you know, an ordained life, and so that's who I am. And I think possibly that my practice has been um, really caring about stories and about culture, and about the preservation of culture. I will, you know, I go hard for New Orleans, and it wasn't until I almost lost New Orleans that I really understood that I was a New Orleanian. Um, and embrace that. So, um, you know, being her representative everywhere I go and what it means to be a New Orleanian really informs my practice, and that's really a reverence for culture and for the artists and the makers and the people who make everything possible for us to live and thrive.
1: So going back to your path Mm -hmm. and going back to looking back and realizing that there were moments that always spoke to you in this space or in this way. Mm -hmm. Um, What what steps did you take though? So OJ trial happened, Mm -hmm. you remembered some things from home, things began to, both looking forward and looking back, there's this sort of continuum that you've been on. Mm -hmm. But in terms of discrete steps, you were going to be a lawyer, you change and then you go and you Major in what?
0: Okay. So um, at Spelman, I was studying, going to study English and political science. I took one political science course, did not like it at all. Loved the teacher, didn't like the course. And so I increasingly took more and more art history courses. And from there, I was not really ready to enter into another academic program. So I applied to New York University's Visual Arts Administration program. And there, I knew I learned about what the art world really was. So the visual arts Administration program was supposed to be about nonprofit management, but I also took for profit courses because you must, must know the market. And so there I learned about the museums in New York, the gallery systems in New York. And one of the um, one of my professors in the program shared with me that in working with artists, you know, you build a narrative, but you don't believe the narrative. So basically, she said, "Never believe your own myth." And so it's really been about, you know, bringing integrity because mythology has its sacred um, places. From there, um, from my NYU program, I did an internship at this gallery called Sink Gallery. Sink Gallery was founded in 1969. Yes, 69, and it was founded by the artists Romare Bearden, Norman Lewis, and Ernest Critchlow. And it was founded, you know, to give African American artists, young, emerging African American artists, gallery representation in a museum world that still kind of did not recognize them. And at C&K Gallery I had the most amazing tutelage and mentorship with a woman named Ruth Jett. Ruth Jett was worked in a library for the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, best friends with Langston Hughes, you know, you know, godmother to Ruby D. and Ossie Davis's children, um, and um, Harry Belafonte's children, and just this amazing cosmopolitan woman. And what Ms. Ruth taught me, and she's now an ancestor, is about developing my eye. And just to be around her was an amazing experience, and I hope to still write about her, you know, um, because she was also one of those key um, cultural figures, like Mo- Michael Lomax, who helped to, you know, was there for, you know, the institutionalization or the professionalization of the Schomburg Center, and also with the Studio Museum in Harlem. Um, New York was a very hard place to get a job, you know, in the arts, especially when, you know, rent was so expensive. And so I decided to apply for a fellowship in St. Louis at the St. Louis Art Museum. And it was a Romare Bearden Fellowship. And I went to St. Louis for about 10 months. Didn't last because it was a culture shock. Um, But one of the things about that is that I taught fourth grade, um, there was this arts and basic curriculum program with the St. Louis City Schools. And basically, the students would come for a four visit sequence to learn about art. That's not what I went to St. Louis for. Um, I really learned to really um, hone my curatorial skills. Um, but I did, because, in a way, I did, because, you know, I had the opportunity to explain complicated concepts to youth, you know, and get them to understand it. And one of the things that I learned is that my students' um, test scores went up. But still, you know, I battled for us to have curatorial experience. And one thing that people may not know, you know, I hate to say that I'm an old head, really, but I guess I am an old head. Um, is that when it came to, like, employment of minorities in museums, most of the times you would see, you know, people of color only as security guards. And then you would also, you know, once there was an opening, it was only in education programs. You know, not so much at the leadership level of, of um, curatorial. And so that was one of the things I championed for. Um, So after St. Louis, I took a curatorial fellowship, the Andrew W. Mellon Curatorial Fellowship at Wellesley College at their Davis Museum and Cultural Center. And that was an amazing experience that I had two um, senior curators who mentored me and taught me the craft and traveled with me and helped me to make um, acquisitions for the college and also um, I had a culminating exhibition there that was the site of a protest and from there I came to Spelman as a curator of collections. So that's my path. So that determination, parental sacrifice, you know, parental support. and just um, providence brought me here, but hard work, nevertheless.
1: Do you remember the first exhibition you curated?
0: Hmm.
1: Can you can you go back in time and and think about where you were at that moment?
0: Okay. Besides the Scooby Doo exhibition at ten,
1: that one that's still very important though. <laughs> Still very important, but...
0: Um, Really, it was my culminating exhibition at Wellesley College, Mm -hmm. and the name of it was The Space Between Artists Engaging Race and Syncretism. And what was your question about that?
1: Take us back to that moment. Um, I guess I'm just, I want to know, I would like to know what do you recall about that moment? And... How have you grown since that moment as a curator?
0: Sure, sure. So I went to Italy for the Venice Biennale in 2001. And that was, I think, the first year that the Biennale had an African pavilion. And that pavilion was curated by Oluwakwebe and the late, great new ancestor, and, um I came across the work of Maria Magdalena Campos-Pons who's also in our permanent collection and Bernie Searle who's a South African artist. The name of the work was Snow White and I mentioned it be- before. And in Snow White she's this woman who's kneeling nude and like she's dusted with this pea flower that's not quite white and this um, rain and so After the precipitation happens, it's a metaphor for everything. She begins to make bread. So I wanted to bring that work to Wellesley at the time. And so I really needed to build a story around that work. And so um, I selected works by an artist who is an artist who deals with art and science. His name is Paul Vanaus Vina- and it's um, the relative um, velocity inscription device in which he isolates DNA of his family. His mother's Jamaican, his father's Caucasian, and he and his sisters' um, DNA to see which to test race theory about who has the strongest DNA. And also, I brought in the work of Lorraine O'Grady, which was called the miscegenated Series and it talks about the uncanny resemblances between her family and Queen Nefertiti. And I also brought in the work of Adrienne Piper, her calling cards, um, Maria Magdalena Campos Pons, it was La Familia Sagrada, also looking at a multiracial family, which is a stunning, beautiful portrait um, of her, her husband, and her son, and also the work of. Um, Lynn Ligon, and it was his um, print-based work, and it was Zora Neale Hurston's Sometimes I Feel Most Colored When I'm Thrown Against a Sharp Black Background. And I guess you could say it was an identity um, kind of um, exhibition, but it was really about where do we fit into this world, you know, and sometimes it's just not always about race. There are so many contexts, so many intersectionalities that look into building who we are, and so um, as far as my curatorial practice and that the space between, I'm always like kind of in an in-between space you know I like being in the middle you know and I also like being at the precipice I like you know sometimes you know you can feel very marginalized but you know the marginalization is where you see the magic happen and you get this great perspective and when you do go out to do, um, projects, as I shared with um, Frida Hyde, Testify George, and Afrofem centrism, you know the kind of touchstones of what you know of where to go and how not to occlude and exclude. And so, basically, it's been about finding home, and that exhibition was really about home.
1: What do you want people, the public, the audience, yes, to know about? the Spelman College Museum's permanent collection. Mm. For those who may not know, that it, one, that it even exists, mm-hmm. but then two, um, the care with which you um, have placed yourself in this space, um, what do you want or how do you want people to, to think about this collection and your connection to that collection?
0: I would want the audience, our patrons, to know that this collection is very deliberate, and that we uplift the work of Black women. And in that, that's not to you know to exclude anyone, you know. But it's giving us a space. I was talking to a friend about, um, and this is a little bit off about the monument in Montgomery, and his question or his concern was that it only kind of told the stories of Black people. I'm like, you know. I think it's a shame that we have to even have a, you know, not not like we want to celebrate this, we're not, we're giving pause to it, but it doesn't mean that we're occluding people. There are sacred spaces that people need to have, and this is a sacred space. And in honoring, you know, each other's sanctity, you know, we can have broader conversations. So the permanent collection is very deliberate, it's global, Um, it's growing, It's, um, it's very conscientious. It celebrates. It's, um, it's, it's welcoming. Um, it's beautiful. Um, it's an oasis. Um, yeah, um, it, it it examines so much about our world um, it's powerful it's valuable in so many ways it's necessary it's it's a testimony sometimes it's a lamentation sometimes it's a praise song but it is in all um, our efforts it's authentic and it's very studied and Um, I'm going to say deliberate and divine.
1: Anne Collins-Smith. Yes, sir. Curator (laughs) of collections for the Spelman College Museum of Fine Art. Anne, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the opportunity to speak about the practice and the mission.